so if you would uh, turn with me you in your Bibles to Psalm 123. And once you uh, are at Psalm 123 in your Bible, once you've gotten uh, that situated, if you could please stand me, uh, stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. So Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hands of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. So Psalm 123, the title of the sermon tonight is Our Focal Point. And one of the big things that kicks up right at the, at the front of this psalm is the, the, the focus or the fixation or the looking towards God as the, the source of hope and the source of uh, deliverance for his people. So uh, Psalm 123 is situated in the Psalter, uh, which is just the, uh, the title for the collection of Psalms. They're unlike other books of scripture where they're uh, a narrative or they're a letter where they kind of follow a logical argument or a theme or a story the whole way through. The Psalms are a collection, as it were, of, of various songs and poems that the Jewish people would have sung to encourage them, to strengthen them, and to remind them of what they believed theologically. And so uh, unlike other books of scripture that have bits and pieces of theology kind of sprinkled throughout, uh, the Psalter in the Old Testament is really high density assumed theology. They'll summarize a lot of big doctrine uh, in very short terms. And the Psalm of Ascents, which uh, if you look, uh, you'll notice the subtitle of this Psalm uh, in Psalm 123 uh, is a Song of Ascents. And then it starts in verse one. And those songs were particularly arranged by the Jewish people uh, for a specific part of their year. Uh, so to, to frame this, uh, they would sing these songs every single year as they would be going up towards Jerusalem to essentially prepare their hearts for worshiping God uh, during a specific part of their calendar year. Now, we might uh, find that a bit strange as they would make their journey to Jerusalem. We don't quite have something like that. The closest thing we have to something like that is Christmas carols or Christmas music, where every year, you know, at the same time of year approximately, we start singing the same old songs again and again, and those songs kind of set the mood, they set the scene, and they supposed to prepare our hearts for worshiping God. Uh, sometimes they just set our heart in a festive mood. Sometimes they prepare us for uh, gifts or for certain uh, kinds of colors or uh, maybe different kinds of sales that are around the corner. But Christmas carols or Christmas songs, those are the same kind of thing where it's preparing your heart for a certain kind of year, uh, for, for a certain time in the year. And the songs of ascent would do something similar for the Jewish people. Although in, in this case, it's much more theologically driven than many of the Christmas hymns that we sing. And they're, it, it's much more God focused and much more theologically rich. And, and for that reason, it's not just something that it's important for us to know when it was sung because that frames for us uh, how the people would have used it in worship. But we can also then reflect on what are they particularly reminding themselves of year after year after year? What, are, what is the theology they're calling to mind as they're going to prepare themselves to worship God in his holy city? And this one uh, is a rather short psalm in general. It's only four verses long. And in those four verses is 
uh, is a whole lot of theology to unpack, a lot of assumed things. And so with that, um, we'll just get into verse 1, and we'll look at all that uh, this song is reminding the Jewish people of. It says, first and foremost in verse 1, To you I lift up my eyes, to you who are enthroned in heavens. Verse 2, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hands of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hands of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Now that last line uh, stands out a bit, uh, that very last line in verse 2, because what you might be expecting is we look to God for blessing, we look to God for refuge. Uh, Sometimes the the Bible will talk about looking to God for hope. Um, In fact, if you you were to just look back a few Psalms to Psalm 121, uh, verse 1, it says, I lift my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? Uh, and the, the question there is not, uh, not for mercy, not for blessing, but in this case for, for help. It's a, it's a different kind of ask from God. But it's a similar idea. Uh, in Psalm 121, they lift their eyes to the hills and ask the question, uh, where does their help come from? In Psalm 123, now they're saying they lift up their eyes, they lift up their eyes to the one who is enthroned in heaven. It's a few psalms later. And now they've established when they look up, when they look for hope, when they look for blessing, when they look for, in this case, mercy, they're looking to a specific one. They're looking to their God. And it's interesting that the psalmist, uh, in this case, delays introducing who this God is. So sometimes the psalm will immediately introduce God, the Lord, Yahweh, as uh, the the first verse or the second verse of the psalm, introduce him, this is who we're praying to. But in this case, uh, the psalmist is kind of drawing out that idea, kind of implying that there is someone they're looking to, but they only identify him by name uh, towards the end of that second verse. You'll see that it's first, I lift up my eyes. So the psalmist is telling uh, all the people that we as a people are lifting up our eyes to look for help. We lift up our eyes to you who are enthroned in heaven. So the you is now being specified. It's not just some general you. uh, It's now the you who is enthroned in heavens. And for a Jewish person, this is already as good as saying who Yahweh is. Uh, you might as well have just named him there. But it's a poetic idea to introduce that he is enthroned in heaven. And then towards the end of the verse, they finally uh, give away who it is. This is Yahweh, our God, who we're referring to right now that we're looking at. But there's, uh, I said there's a lot of rich theology in this. The first thing that you see there in verse 1 is that God is established by the psalmist as one who is enthroned in heavens. And this idea is, I think, sometimes uh, something that we think about in vague terms, especially in a, in a Western world. We, we, we tend to think about heavens or, or uh, you know, the afterlife or things like that in, in kind of these vague, blissful terms. But uh, for a Jewish author, the one who's enthroned in heavens is, is the one who controls everything that happens on the earth. So if you are if you, if you want to be in, in charge of what's happening on the earth, if you want to be over the harvests and the rain, if you want to be over uh, the storms, if you want to be over uh, foreign nations and foreign peoples, the, the highest thing that you can talk about someone being enthroned over is the world. And the one who's enthroned over the world is the one who's enthroned in heaven. And heaven sits over the earth, right? And so they're talking about God not as just one who's enthroned in heavens as some vague idea that kind of exists in, in their minds, but he's the one who's enthroned now over everything in creation that they're talking about. Everything that they see on their journey up to the road to worship him, the city that they're going to go worship him in right now, that he's the one who's over everything that's happening and all of their creation. 
and even more so, as becomes clear in the end of the second verse, he's the one who uh, they're looking to providentially to uh, essentially better their lot in this world. Something that uh, they, they asked for there at the end is that he would have mercy upon them. And it's interesting because the Jewish people we typically think about as having a good relationship with God. Uh, we, we tend to think about them as being the blessed people of God, who Abraham is, you know, the, the father of the Jewish nation, and through him comes the seed. And through him, all the blessings flow to these people, and they're established by God in the promised land. They're, uh, they're victorious over their enemies. But something, at, at least at this point in history, when this psalm is being written, uh, is, is likely to remind the Jewish people of the fact that although God's blessing was upon them right now in this area of time, they're not under the blessing of God, they're under his, his wrath, his judgment. And we might say, well, why would God judge or have, have vengeance on his people? If they're his people particularly, why would he, he chastise them? And it's because as, as the unfolding of history tells us, the Jewish people don't remain faithful to God as he tells them to. He gives them commands. He says, uh, obey me and I will bless you. Uh, but if you disobey me, if you walk away from what I've told you, how to love me, uh, there's, there's real consequences for walking away from me. Now, it's not a consequence for them that, that nullifies the covenant that he's made with them, but the consequence is very real, very painful. And in many cases, it leads to uh, felt physical brokenness in their, in their life. So in this case, uh, likely in their reality here, uh, this is during the Babylonian captivity or exile, or maybe shortly thereafter. So the Jewish people are not the powerful nation that they once were. They have been destroyed. Their, their cities, their high hills have been completely wiped out. Their dominion over the land is, is not something they can boast in anymore. Um, they don't have wealth. They don't have a, a claim to the land that they're even walking through, likely. They have lords over them who are their, their leaders and their captives who are pagan worshipers who do not believe in Yahweh. And nevertheless, in, in the midst of all this, you know, they're, they're completely overshadowed by these, these, this foreign nation that has come to destroy them and this foreign nation that has enslaved them and, and brought them low. And so it's interesting in the midst of that, as they're, as they're keeping their regular reminder of truth, that the Jewish people would be reminded that in spite of all this, we, we don't ask the Babylonians, we don't ask our king to have mercy on us. We're asking God to have mercy on us. And that's an interesting, an interesting point of theology because what they're saying in asking God to have mercy on them is they're at least in some way saying that he's, he's providentially over or in control of or uh, orchestrating the suffering that they're currently experiencing. And I think that's a difficult thing for us to understand who live you know, uh, so far removed from that context because we would say that it's you know, if they've repented, if they've, if they've turned away from their, their brokenness, surely God could, should just, you know, fix them right back up, give their nation back to them, give their land back to them, uh, give them another good king and let, let that happen. But as part of the judgment of the Jewish people, it's not like a one-time slap on the wrist. Uh, often their judgment is, is told as taking place over the course of uh, decades and large spans of time as the consequence for their apostasy. And so it's interesting that in the midst of, you know, that, uh, era of exile and shortly thereafter that the Jewish people would be singing this song reminding them that it is God who still is enthroned in the heavens. He has not lost his power. Even though Babylon is our ruler and they don't serve God, God has not lost his power. He's still in heaven. They're asserting that. We still have to lift our eyes up not to the king of Babylon, not to the God who the Babylonian king worships, uh, not to these people do we lift up our eyes. We lift them up to Yahweh 
And it's Yahweh who we have to ask for help and for mercy and for deliverance. It's interesting that they're grounding themselves in the, in the truth that God is sovereign, even in the midst of their pain. I think it's interesting because from our vantage point, that's when we as a people are most likely to uh, abandon God and think that surely he could not be in control if this is happening, if something painful is going on. Certainly God is not willing that to happen or wanting that to occur or uh, powerful over that. Certainly this is a, something that's happening against God's will. And so God, uh, we don't have to ask him to have mercy on us. We just have to ask him to rescue us and to be more sovereign and you know, then things will go well. And in the, in the case of the Jewish people, their sin has led to this state of brokenness. And now they ask for God to have mercy on them in their period of exile. And they lift up their eyes and they, they lift up their hope to God. The idea of lifting up our eyes is even something that we've retained in, in, in our English language. Uh, it's, when you lift up your eyes to something, you're talking about uh, your, your fixation, your thought life. What, what do you care about? Where do you, where do you look to? We would say, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean you're visually looking at something. Uh, sometimes we're just talking about what do you pay attention to? What do you care about? What do you focus on? What do you hope in? Uh, the eyes are a, a dominant sense. They inform uh, much of uh, the surrounding experience that we have. And in that, uh, for us to say we look to something is for us to say that we are uh, paying careful attention to it. We are, we are uh, banking our hope in that thing. So here they're talking about lifting up their eyes in a metaphorical sense, not uh, because they can't see heaven. They can't see God enthroned in heaven. So they're not talking about visually seeing him. They're talking about looking to him in terms of their, in terms of their thoughts, in terms of their concerns, in terms of their hopes. This is where they're throwing themselves before God. To you, I lift up my eyes. To you who are enthroned in heavens. They can't see God in heaven. There's only a handful of times recorded in scripture where someone sees the throne of God and even so it's this wonderful and hard to grasp description of what the throne room looks like. They're not talking about looking visually at the throne room of God. They're talking about looking to him as a source of hope and a source of, in this case, mercy. The God who is enthroned over heavens, who's providentially over the, the people who are their captors, who's providentially over their current lot and circumstance in life, he is the one who they're looking to to have mercy on them. And the, the psalmist describes it further as not, not just generally look at lifting their eyes, but uh, as the eyes of a servant would look to the hand of the servant's master, or as the eyes of a maidservant uh, would look to the hand of her mistress. That's the description or the, the further explanation of what it looks like to lift up your eyes to God. Now that's an interesting idea because uh, in part the admission is that the relationship between the Jewish people and God is somewhat like what it is to, uh, for a servant to look to a master. It is somewhat what it is like for us to uh, look to one who is over us, who is divine, who is not our equal. He is one who is far more powerful than us. And more so than that, it's one who it, it controls us in some sense. If you were to go back into uh, the old world of uh, servants and masters, even even in making the distinction between a, a servant and a slave, there's still this overwhelming rule that the master would have over the servant. The servant does not clock in or out of work. They would be someone who is at the very bidding of their master at all times. And so uh, the idea that's being evoked is not one of some, some harsh or cruel master, but the, the Jewish people are saying that their relief, their uh, rest comes not when they decide it's over, when they can clock out, their relief and their rest comes 
when, when God's hand decides to move and dismiss them from this burden that they're under right now. The idea is that they have to look to him because if they look anywhere else, there's no solution coming there. There's, no, uh, there's nothing that's going to move the needle for them in any other situation or location. If they have to look to God, and God will give them the indication of when this is finally going to be over. He's the one who's in control from heaven, and he's the one who they look to for relief or for mercy. Because even in their current suffering, God is providentially over that suffering. Now, uh, this might be uh, true of the Jewish people, but uh, if we're reflecting on this, when we, when we read these verses, something that might come to our minds is, the, is that the Jewish people aren't all that different from us. And that their temptation would be to look away from God and towards other stuff to have s- security in. They, they would lift their eyes up maybe to their king, maybe to their captives, maybe to um, their, their wealth, their security, their military might. Often Israel is guilty of boasting in their, their material power. They're guilty of uh, looking to other gods for sources of blessing and harvest time. And so it's, it's interesting that in the captivity, in the exile, they're being reminded of the fact that they need to look to God as their God who is to deliver them or have mercy on them. They can't look to Baal. They can't look to the kings. They have to look just to God as their source. And, and in that, they're not all that different from us. We, we often are tempted as Christians, it's kind of the constant temptation of the Christian life, to look away from the source of, of deliverance, to look away from the source of mercy, to look away from the God who blesses us, and, and pay attention to other stuff. Pay attention to ourselves. Uh, we care a lot about what's going on in our lives, and we'll look to ourselves as a source of a hope or strength. We'll look possibly to uh, the government, and we'll say, oh, whatever's going on there, whatever I'm paying attention to there, is what's going to uh, deliver me or to, to rescue me in some sense. We might pay attention to the material wealth that we have as the Jewish people would have done. And we, we say that, uh, well, if I'm doing well in life here with, with riches, with wealth, then uh, my eyes can look to those things as a source of hope or security or deliverance. I don't need mercy from God. I have this as a source of deliverance. But they're being reminded theologically they have to look to God. He's their source of mercy. And in so, we can remind ourselves of the fact that we're not all that different from them. Even we who've, uh, who've seen God, who, who've seen him to bestow his blessings upon us, who've maybe at one point had our focus or our focal point on God, uh, maybe we've shifted focus at some point. And the regular singing of this song will remind the Jewish people to once again forsake whatever other focus they have and, and fixate their eyes on God. But not just look at him in, in visual uh, acuity alone. They want to th- cast their hopes upon him. They want to look to him as a source of strength and deliverance, salvation. He is their Lord. He is their God. And so they look to him, not in uh, a posturing kind of sense, uh, but for a real genuine sense of deliverance. Now, to expand the idea of mercy, uh, there, he's so far in verse 2 only said that one time, till he has mercy on us, that's what they're longing for. Now, now the plea expands in verse 3, and the plea moves from uh, God having mercy on us, uh, and now it's going to expand what, what exactly do they need mercy from. So in verse 3, he says, Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. And verse 4 expands the idea further. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. And, and in this, we, we were coloring in a little bit of the 
the suffering or the pain that this Jewish nation is experiencing at the hands of their captors. Uh, even if this is post-exile, even if this is after they've been under real captivity, maybe it's uh, following that period of time. It's unclear historically when this psalm is written. Even in that sense, they're not at their former might. They're a nation that has faced scorn. Uh, they've been wiped out and bested by other nations. So they can no longer boast in military power. And as such, they're the object of much scorn and much contempt. Uh, this uh, continues even until uh, the first century uh, uh, where the New Testament is written that time period. The Jewish people are the subject of Roman contempt at that point in time. Uh, before that, they were the subject of uh, the contempt of basically anyone who was ruler over them from the time that they were destroyed and sacked until the Roman people. Uh, and, and God's people are, are the subject of this scorn, the subject of this contempt. And so they, but they don't ask Rome to have mercy on them. Uh, they're not asking anyone who's over them to have mercy. They're asking God to have mercy on them because they recognize that this suffering that they're going through is uh, providentially caused or allotted by the hand of God. And the reason they are asking for mercy is because they know that at least in some sense that they, they don't, he doesn't owe it to them to relieve their suffering. Now, why might that be? It seems strange for us to say that if they're asking him for mercy, shouldn't he, he grant it? You know, it, it's, it's kind of his obligation to do so. But God's covenant people have forsaken him. They've turned their back on him historically. And so at this point in time, when they're asking God to have mercy on them, they're not asking from a position of they fulfilled the covenant and they can demand that God fulfill his end of the covenant because they have not fulfilled the covenant. They've not been obedient to what they, was required of them. And so they cannot go to God and say, remember, you made a deal with us. You made a covenant with us. And we fulfilled our end. Now your job is to fulfill your end. You have to be faithful. You cannot punish us. You must bless us according to the covenant. But they're asking for mercy because they cannot insist on the basis of their merit or on the basis of what they've accomplished or on the basis of their loyalty towards Yahweh that he must uh, give them uh, relief. Instead, they ask for mercy. And mercy means that they're asking for something that by definition that they cannot deserve. They, they cannot demand of God to give them mercy. God could choose to give his people mercy, but he in no way is obligated to do so. He loves to, according to his own word. When he reveals himself to Moses, he says, uh, I am Yahweh, a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So we know in his character, he, he loves to display mercy. But why, why would God need to display mercy if, if we were faithful to him? So we, as his people, bank on the fact that he is a merciful God. We, we rely on it. We, we need it. It's of necessity that he has mercy. If he had no mercy, we would be completely out of luck. If he was a God only of justice of, and he showed no mercy, then justice would be served, uh, but all of us would be the worse for wear because of that. And his people recognize this about his character because he so far, even in their own history, revealed himself to be merciful essentially on every, every page of scripture that has been recorded for them. And probably even in their own lifetime of experience, he's shown them mercy. Because let's say this is during the exile, part of his mercy to the people in the exile is the fact that they're not fully destroyed, but he preserves a remnant who's faithful to him. He didn't have to do that. All of his people forsook him. And yet he says he's going to put it in his people to preserve a remnant. 
and he's going to posture them in high positions of power, even in this other empire. And the good of their people, the good of the Jewish people will be had. So it's a, it's a kind of mercy of God, even in their punishment, that he preserves them or keeps them. It's a kind of mercy of God that post the exile, they're allowed to return back to their city. They're allowed to return back to their land. Now, they don't have the same freedom that they had before, but it's his mercy that is evidenced in their daily experience to even have the freedom not to be under the thumb of the Babylonian people on a day-to-day basis. They have a little bit more leeway now. They see this as his, his mercy, or at least they need to be reminded to see it as his mercy. Because one of the things that happens uh, even for us today is when we get used to the, the common mercies of God in our life, we begin to become a little bit more demanding, maybe a little bit more cynical of the fact that he has not given us more blessings, uh, more things that we think he owes to us. But in fact, God, God owes nothing to us. When God uh, makes a covenant with Abraham, he, he makes the covenant and he says, if, if you will be faithful to me, I will bless you. But if you, are, if you forsake me, if you, if you disobey my word, if you eat of this tree, you will die. And when Abraham, or, or and when, when Adam uh, is then uh, against God, when he, when he denies that covenant, when he forsakes it, God shows him mercy. He does not kill Adam and Eve. He has mercy upon them. He shows them grace. And from that point in scripture all the way forward, every time we see the people of God forsaking him, there's punishment, there's consequence associated with the breaking of God's law, his commands, his word. But there's never a a full outpouring of judgment on the people. Handful of times you see something like that. Sometimes people are against Moses, God's chosen servant, and so the ground opens up and swallows them whole. Sometimes uh, people worship God in a way that they're not supposed to, that's forbidden, and so God consumes them with fire. And we look at those things and we say, that seems rather harsh. But that's what justice looks like. And the reason we see that standing out to us is because the rest of Scripture is littered with mercy all over the place. And so we, mercy is our default, and we see justice as the strange thing. But what scripture tells us is that justice ought to be what we default expect and that mercy should be seen as ebbing and flowing from his character. It is God's goodness that he shows mercy. It is out of the abundance of his character and nature that he shows mercy. It is not out of anything owed to any one of us or to any of his people. And so we see this even in the Old Testament. We tend to think about the Old Testament God as one who is not super merciful, a little bit more harsh and wrathful. But instead, what we see is a God who's abundantly merciful to his people, who blesses them even as they lust after other gods and pursue military might and and worship false gods. He's so merciful that he can even tolerate uh, aberrant pagan practices from their kings as they rule over them. And he can continue to bless his nation and keep them for years into false worship. And that, that's a blessing to us because if, if we even post-Christ as the church would, would demand that God uh, be just to us and not show us mercy, uh, there's several points in the church's history where we bank on the mercy of God to preserve us despite our lack of faithfulness to him. We often are looking away from God. And when we look away from God, we are saying, we don't trust you. You're not you don't have our good. We fix our eyes away from the focal point that's demanded and we look to something else and God could justly say, you've forsaken me, you've turned your eyes from me, 
And so you should justly receive whatever is coming. But instead, time after time, even the history of the church will tell us that when we forsake him, he does not forsake us. Not because he owes it to us, but because it is in his character and nature to show mercy. He shows mercy to Peter to restore him back to fellowship with him after Peter denies Jesus three times at the hour of crucifixion. He does not show a similar mercy to Judas. And we cannot look at God and say, you owe it to Judas because you showed it to Peter. Judas is not restored. Judas receives justice for his betrayal of the Son of God. Uh, Peter receives mercy, not justice. There's a difference. And in both instances, uh, it is a just kind of thing that happens. Now, mercy can be shown not because, uh, not because only because of God's character, but because God has objectively sealed it into the reality of the unfolding of history that mercy is an option. And he does this by way of his own blood being spilt on the cross. Because the only way for God to have mercy and not to violate the laws of just punishment is for him to take whatever justice was owed to us or to his people who forsook him and to pour it out on Jesus on the cross. In doing so, Jesus' death atones for or makes payment for all of the sins that Jesus uh, will later go about and forgive or have mercy upon as the judge. And he can do so because he spilt his own blood to pay for those sins. And so he, he goes around and he can dismiss sins. He can say, go, your sins are forgiven because he is, he's able to, he's, he's earned the right to dismiss sins. We don't have the right to do something like that. Uh, we're told by God that we can have confidence that he does forgive sins if we pray to him and confess our sins, not because he owes it to us, but because he has sealed it in the, to, into the fabric of redemptive history that sins will be forgiven. He's having mercy. And he's able to do so because he paid for all the mercy he's ever going to give. He paid for it in full, and he paid for it in a way that is, is inexhaustible. It's beyond the scope of what we can understand. Because Jesus dies, God could have had mercy in the Old Testament, and he can continue to have mercy even to this day. And in the, so he's not unjust, where he pardons people and sins remain outstanding, and other sins he punishes. That would be what happens in our justice system, because if, if we were to let someone who murders someone go free, we would say that justice has not been done there. The judge did not have the authority vested in them to just let someone go. But a just judge who himself paid the payment can, without violating justice, let someone guilty go free. He, he has mercy on his people. And his people know this. They need to be also reminded of this as we do. So they say, have mercy on us, O God. Have mercy upon us. And the way in which they're experiencing his punishment, his judgment, is from the contempt of the surrounding peoples, from the contempt of those who are around them. And they, the psalmist then uh, in verse 4 kind of concludes this idea by saying, Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease or of the contempt of the proud. And the psalmist here is saying, essentially, there are people who have it easy in this life, who look upon the chosen nation of God, Israel, and they look at us and they scorn us, they mock us, and they are at ease, they are proud, they are haughty over us. And we, we, are, uh, we are not able to tolerate that. So would you have mercy on us, God? 
And, and God, uh, in some sense, uh, permits and allows for and uh, ordains the enduring of contempt of his people. In so, he has taught them faithfulness. When God blesses Israel and gives them all that they want, lands, kings, abundance, that's when they forsake him the most. When he gives them everything that they could feel and want and desire. He, that's when they turn their backs on him. And it's interesting that after that period of time, after the exile, after the punishment for forsaking him, that through the bruising of his people, he teaches them in obedience. He teaches them to long for him, to be dependent upon him. He teaches them that when they are filled up with contempt, when they are broken to the max, is when he is able to bless them and show mercy to them. But in their brokenness is how he's taught them to run to him. When he, when he blessed them, they learned to run away and to pursue whatever else they wanted. And so in God's gracious love to his people, he breaks them. He bruises them. He nearly crushes them. All to, to teach them to turn back and to be utterly dependent upon him. And similarly, in the New Testament, Jesus tells his disciples to expect the kind of suffering, to expect the kind of contempt from the world that would cause you to break if you were not endured by me. If I did not keep you, if I did not preserve you, if my strength did not go with you, you would be broken and you would abandon it. And you would leave me and you would run away as the disciples do when he is crucified. And, and Jesus teaches them, if you're going to expect anything from the life of being a disciple, expect for the world to have it out for you. Expect to be the contempt of the world. Expect to be the scorn of those who hate my name. You should expect that. And this is not because Jesus is not enthroned over the world and he's somehow working out a victory that he's not yet achieved. He permits and allows for his people, his followers, in this lifetime, before he comes finally to establish dominion and, and felt rule over this world, before he establishes that, he, he is allowing and permitting for the suffering of his people. Not because he does not love his people. Not because uh, we are somehow working out sin that we still owe to God. He permits it to teach us dependence upon him. He teaches us to be reliant on him hour by hour, day after day. He shows us that if we are ever going to forsake our dependence on him, we'll be crushed by the weight of all that we deal with. The church would not survive. It would not make it. And in his love for the church, in his, in his pursuit of her heart, in his desire to be the center of her affections, he keeps her dependent upon him until the time where he will come again to now bless her in the fullest sense to give her uh, rule and blessing and dominion and an abiding peace that knows no bounds. We, uh, we have an option. When we, when we face scorn and contempt from the world, our temptation sometimes is to look to the people who scorn us, who, who shame us, who, who mock us, and to, to try to in some way say, don't dislike us so much, we're actually not all that different from you. And we try to make, make peace or make amends with the world that, that viscerally will hate us if we do not abandon our faith. 
And that could work for a time. We could make enough soothing remarks. We could, we could assuage their fears about us. But ultimately, that does not, it does not uh, provide a lasting peace with the world. We cannot have peace with the world. We cannot soothe their contempt. We cannot even join them in their mockery of us and call out uh, the church, which is a temptation for us to join them and say the church is bad in all these kinds of ways. We, we are the object of scorn. We are the object of hatred. And we need to look not to the world for relief, not to the proud who scorn us for relief. We need to look to a providential sovereign king for endurance and ultimately his mercy of relief. And this is not something uh, that uh, we're just in, uh, assuming that is true about the Jewish people and is, is true about the church as well. Um, in, in the whole book of the, the New Testament, there's all these letters collected. And many of them deal with the fact that the church in the first century is, is blessed by God, it's thriving, but in so many ways it's, it's being completely wiped out. It's being uh, cast out of the city of Jerusalem. It's being cast out of Rome. They're being persecuted. They're being flogged. They're being chased out of synagogues. Uh, they're being martyred all over the place. And, and it's in that uh, context that the Apostle John, one of the oldest of the apostles, really living, the only one who dies uh, in a natural uh, death kind of way, he's the, he writes uh, to the church as it's, as it's at its chief moment of facing persecution, at least at that time. And at the beginning of Revelation, he tells them, uh, don't, uh, he doesn't say uh, make peace with Rome. He doesn't say uh, the doctrine that we teach, you should soften up on some of that stuff. Rome will deal with us. They'll tolerate us if we are not so insistent on certain things. He doesn't, he doesn't say any of that. He says, your suffering uh, is brutal. It's painful. Uh, you will suffer. Uh, but in uh, Revelation 1, he, he tells them that Jesus is seated on the throne. And he is coming back, and he will come back in power. It's not that he's not on the throne yet. He's got to get to the throne eventually, and then he'll come back in power once he's really enthroned. He's enthroned now. He's in some, some mysterious way permitting all these things to occur, even if we don't understand all of it. And when he comes back in power, the church will have her peace. And we, as, as pilgrims in this world, long for, for that moment of enjoyment with God. We long to experience that kind of peace, but if we don't experience it now, we can't insist upon God to bring it to us. We Remember, all of the peace that we would experience would be his mercy poured out on us. Uh, even the ability to live in this world, to breathe, to have blessings, uh, to enjoy work, to enjoy good food, to enjoy warm showers, those are all uh, blessings from God. Either his mercy shown to us, poured out for us, and they anticipate his mercy ultimately when he comes and, and essentially wipes away the effect of sin. He's dealt with it in, in history. He's on the cross completely taken care of the payment of sin. He's dealt with the effects. And for some reason that is, is curious to us, he's delaying the full uh, bringing about of that felt victory. That does not mean he's not victorious. In the same way that if the Israelites, uh, Israelites uh, when they were in exile, would say, God is no longer God. Someone else is God. He's not enthroned anymore. They, they can no more say that than we can say Jesus is not enthroned because things aren't going for us as, they are, as we want them to. We know that he's enthroned. We know that he's permitting uh, sin to still uh, have its way in some sense in this world. 
We know that the gospel is going forward, not quite as effectively as we would like it to. In some sense, uh, it's extremely frustrating for us to see the church struggling and, and, and failing and, and rising up and then crashing down in many ways. But all of that is, uh, is totally under his control. And, and at no point in history, depending on how good or how bad it's going, can we look at God and say, well, he must not be in charge up there anymore. Or he must be losing this fight and maybe at some point when he wins it, then we'll experience blessings forevermore. He is enthroned. He is established over all the earth in heaven, rightfully reigning. And when we face scorn and, and mockery, when we face uh, abuse at people who hate the church, we don't look to them to make peace with them. We look to God. We lift our eyes up to Jesus who's enthroned. And we, we long for him to come again. We pray, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven. We are taught humility at the hand of Jesus who gives us new mercies every morning to endure in this world. And we are taught mostly to, to long for the thing that we most desire, which is to be at one fellowship with him. We are right now developing a, uh, a ravenous appetite to enjoy fellowship with him. In all of the brokenness and all of the pain and all of the, the shortcomings of this world, we're developing a, a keen desire to actually enjoy fellowship with him. In the same way that uh, if you are sitting down for dinner at someone's house and uh, a meal is being prepared in the back and you smell the meal being prepared and you're hungry and the longer the meal delays, the more, uh, the more delicious uh, it, it becomes to your mind, the more you fixate upon it until finally you can enjoy the food. In a similar vein, uh, we, we long to experience oneness with God. We long to experience the, the lack of brokenness and sin in this world. Uh, but in a real sense, the delay is creating a kind of additional longing, an additional pleasure, uh, enjoyment so that when the wedding feast of the Lamb is finally had, there's this full sense of enjoyment. So even in his, in his allowing the church to suffer, in his allowing individual Christians to go through hardship, he's, he's showing us mercy. He's giving us his mercies every day. And when we lift up our eyes uh, in suffering, in, in hardship, in brokenness, we cannot lift our eyes up to anyone aside from the one who's actually enthroned over all things. And so we lift up our eyes to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, Lord over all the earth, who is seated at the right hand of the Father on high and, and longs to answer the prayers of his children. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the blessings that you show us every day. Lord, would you, by the grace of your spirit and uh, the power of your word, sanctify us, sharpen us, create within us the ability to see more clearly the world as it is. Would we long for you to... Uh, to feel you, to enjoy presence with you. Uh, by your grace, would you allow us to experience that in some, uh, some dim, shadowy way right now on this earth? And, and, and would that create in, within us an additional longing to really enjoy fellowship with you one day? Lord, by your grace, would you preserve us and keep us? Would you bless us? 
And Lord, would you be, be delighted to come again for your bride, uh, that we would be able to enjoy perfect fellowship with you, to walk with you in the cool of the garden, and to converse with you and to dwell with you. As you promise us in your word, your dwelling place will once again be with man. And that is possible not because of anything we've done, uh, but only because of uh, what you and your grace to us have done. Lord, we thank you uh, for that grace. We lift up your name. Amen.